Well, good evening. Wonderful to be with you here and um, have this opportunity uh, to connect in this way. Um, It's always a, a great delight for me to to practice Qigong uh, on retreats. Uh, there's a, such a deep and natural uh, attentiveness to the practice as we are here for the practice of metta and for the essential mindfulness that it accompanies that in, a, in this uh, beautiful way that, the, that our container holds. So this evening, Um, as I have an opportunity to be with you in this way, I want to talk a little bit about our Qigong Dharma practice, talk a little bit about the connection to metta and compassion, of course, and um, this endeavor that we are in of of waking up. It's it's an evolutionary process, I, I, I do believe. So, in the, in the practice of uh, Qigong that we've done over the course of our time together, uh, one of the reasons that it has, um, that it's used on retreats like this and has been for many, many years now is this natural calming effect that it has on the nervous system. So we come into retreat, obviously, and we have, uh, we're bringing our whole life with us. And that's as it should be. So the, uh, the practice, then, is it's in its direct connection to our metta and to our mindfulness, is one of being present, um, learning how to connect in with the body, sometimes in a new and um, uh, unique way. So the the practices of Qigong have been around for a long, long time. I think we have um, probably historical and archaeological, you know, uh, evidence that goes back at least three thousand years, but it's very likely that it goes back much further than that. And it's very likely that the roots of these practices are shamanic, that uh, grew up in the shamanic traditions in the small uh, tribal uh, medicine people working with, um, working with their constituency. And uh, in relationship to Buddhist practice, of course, which is a little bit newer, um, it had a very interesting confluence with uh, the flow of Taoist practices in China. So Taoists have been working with um, with health practices, with what uh, they used to call Tao Yin. We do the, in the mornings, we do the Tao Yin Meridian tapping practice. So as part of their investigation of the internal, of the little more subtle aspect of who we are as, as beings. We know ourselves as, as physical beings and mental beings, 
emotional beings, but we're also energetic beings. So the, this life moving through us, very interesting. And uh, there were maps that were done by uh, the ancient practitioners in China, just as there were in India. They, uh, the Indian yogis and the, those um, explorers connected with the subtle or the subtler channels in uh, the body. And the yogis, of course, called those nadis. And the Chinese called these subtler lines of life force moving through meridians. Um, Whether we call it prana or chi or bioelectrical energy is really the same, the same life force. But very interesting. It, um, it has a, an innate and built-in intelligence. That which animates our life uh, connects also right into the, uh, the life of the universe itself. So when we practice in this way, we're practicing a very deep and profound meditation, a direct connection to the universe. I think uh, the other night, right from the beginning, uh, Bonnie was talking about the two ways of, uh, of knowledge, the two flows of knowledge. Certainly we have the cognitive flow of knowledge and the things that we know through the subject-object relationship. Our contemplative practice, our meditative practice, then also opens us up to this other aspect of who we are. Um, variously called our Buddha nature, the Tao, true self, the supreme witness, God, goddess, all that is. These, uh, these reference this pure field of being that we are connected with, interconnected with, and um, which enlivens us. So part of the process of awakening is maybe Um, some aspect of letting go to this, remembering it, and uh, connecting. So our internal practices, like the yoga and the qigong, in relationship to the meditative practice, are those of the, to uh, relax and release through the body, to allow the flow, this natural flow of the energetic being to take place. So you know from your practice um, of qigong and and your yogic practices, when you do those practices, the sense of vitality is there. Um, And in the morning, I hope that after we've done this cultivation of the qigong practice, that when you sit down, then it feels like you can sit for a long time. You could sit forever. You could just really be in that space of... uh, of presence and awareness. So the two flows of of knowledge, we want to honor them both. Uh, The the ways of knowing that is basically connected with our cognitive knowing, with the information that comes through the gateways of the senses, and the way that our uh, minds work with and interpret that. So to do the qigong practices in that way 
doesn't mean like that should be the only thing that you do. Um, many of you like, and as I myself do, like um, yogic practices, yoga practices from the Hatha uh, line. And um, I'll occasionally I'll do weight resistance and walking and running and swimming. All those things. There's a time for everything. On retreat, when we're working with uh, moving into this deeper absorption that I know that um, Temple talked about last night, and which naturally happens in the course of our practice, when we connect with uh, the, um, the quality, that deep quality of ease and letting go. So you can't think your way into awakening. You can't think your way into enlightenment. And yet, the potential is, is very much there. Maybe I'll say a little bit more about that as we go along, but uh, in, uh, awakening and enlightenment is not just one thing. It's not just like, oh, you got awakened, and now everything is good, and, uh, no troubles. Um, uh, even wisdom doesn't mean no mistakes. So the, the Buddha was very wise, and as we look back into the cultural lens uh, of his time, he did the best he could, but there were inequities, of course, with the uh, female and males in the Sangha, you know, so they weren't uh, always treated the same. It was part of the culture at the time. Um, so as we look back on that, we say, yeah, the Buddha should have maybe done that. But um, he was working with the best he knew, given his cultural context, given the, the way that he was um, working not only with awakening, he already had wonderful, pure, clear, non-dual awareness, the understanding of the wonderful connectedness that we have with the Tao, with life, with, with um, all being. So this other way of knowing, which we connect with in... Uh, our practices, various kinds, our Vipassana practice to some degree, uh, just clear, deep, heart-mind meditation, that spacious meditation, the presencing of awareness itself. Um, such a gift, and such a gift to have that during the course of our time together um, in retreat, any retreat, really. As people have been practicing metta over the time, um, I've heard some that, well, I'm not feeling the metta. And it's as if that the working with the phrases and the generation of the phrases and those aspects of the practice should actually generate some um, emotional fuzzy goodness. And, um, and often it does. But even as you practice uh, the metta, and if those things do not arise spontaneously at the time, does not necessarily mean that you're doing your metta wrong. Metta connects with a deep heart intention for your own well-being, for the well-being of others. So you can appreciate 
uh, as you practice and you, you work with those phrases, um, the wave-like nature of impermanence. Sometimes there'll be the connection where uh, you have the, the feeling of heart opening and presence, uh, the deeper sense of connecting, connection or interconnection, and, uh, and other times it might even seem dry. And why are we doing this? And why am I, why am I doing this practice? But what I would offer you is that if you connect with your heart's intention for the goodness of the practice, to let that um, be the intention for moving uh, into your practice, that creates a larger arc. That creates the, the field of um, a sense of commitment to the practice as you recognize the value of the practice. So that's one way of connecting with this deeper aspect of, of knowing. Um, I think I've said in some of our meetings together that when this practice, if it does, becomes dry to you, you can also just begin to let all of that material that's arising in your mind, even the phrases, move slightly backwards in your awareness, towards the background. And then bring your attention to awareness itself. When Bonnie was, was uh, referencing, you know, pay more attention, give more cred to, uh, to Chita, what does that mean? What, how does that actually happen? Well, it happens by how we gradually pay attention to this other aspect of ourselves. It's variously called um, our relative nature and our absolute nature. So this connection to source is not something that you can necessarily um, think your way into. But the interesting thing is this presence uh, of, our true, of our true nature is here right now, has always been here, will always be here. It's part of this quality of, um, uh, that's sometimes called the deathless. It's the unborn, the undying. So in a certain way, we think we have to attain this. We have to reach for it. And in the presencing of this um, life that we are, uh, variously called, this, this aspect is variously called uh, shunyata, emptiness, fullness, also Buddha nature, luminous life, luminous, radiant presence. All these wonderful names that point to this quality of being that we are. So our contemplative practice, our meditative practice, our qigong practice helps us to open to this wonderful um, resonance of being that is at once uh, alive, vital, uh, intelligent, and kind. I often reference, um, when I'm thinking about this, people wonder, 
well, is the universe kind? And this was one of the questions towards the end of his life that Albert Einstein asked. You know, is the universe kind? And when we look for, um, for evidence of this, what we can see is our own evolving awareness, our own awakening to this nature of who we are, and see that, that essentially, primarily, in the very core of our life, in the very core of our being, as we touch this, there is kindness. There is goodness, there is intelligence, there is potential that we have only begin, begun to connect with as human beings. So as we has the, have this sense of, of evolution, of moving, of, of um, uh, awakening, being awakening beings, we, we needn't worry about awakening. We are awakening beings. We are beings engaged in the process both of, um, of this deep understanding of who we are in our true nature, and also, in a sense, growing up, bringing a sense of um, perhaps spiritual intelligence, understanding that our bodies and our and the conditions that we find ourselves in, yeah, um, you know, sometimes there are we've had problems. We have problems all over the earth. It's it's so clear. Um, We were born into interesting families, some of them really wonderful, some of them troubling for us. You know, then we have relationships and we have circumstances where there's injury and trauma. And uh, awakening itself, in other words, just inside itself, sometimes is not enough. There's, of course, the sayings like in the Vajrayana tradition, they say, one drop, one drop of emptiness purifies an ocean of samskaras. And in a way, that's true. In a way, when we connect with that clear, deep heart mind that we are, that, that unified presence, that non-dual awareness, uh, in that moment, there is amazing clarity. Um, and the, the, the Dharma practice, the waking up, the growing up practice, the, the Qigong practice, is also called the great unwinding. So what is this unwinding? What gets unwound? That's your koan. So... In part, what gets wound, unwound is not just the field of insight which is present for us in our practice, in our, in our dharmic practice, in the various other ways we might engage in, uh, in spiritual practice. But this unwinding also moves through these layers of, uh, of conditioning. Yeah. So if anything... The, the Dharma practice helps to uh, actually be an intervention with habitual patterning. Those are physical 
energetic, neurological, biological, emotional. And it's not like these are wrong. It's just that suffering is caused by unconsciousness in relationship to this material that's variously called shadow material. It's stuff that affects our lives without us really knowing, without us feeling the transparency of, oh, that's what it is. It just happens. We become angry. We become sad, depressed. These various elements of our human, of our human being. So our Dharma practice, very, very important to, to bring about that sense of, um, of awakening the non-dual, Uh, understanding and direct perception of our connection, our interconnection, understanding that that life that, that looks out your eyes into my eyes is the same life. And we can really celebrate that. And it's also important from time to time to do whatever work requires for this kind of cleaning up, this, um, this other aspect of growing up. So that's the space also for us of, um, of compassion, to understand that we are in this process. We are in this natural uh, evolution of awareness. And sometimes evolution is messy, you know? It... Uh, there's fits and stops and starts and changes of direction, all of that. So what's our anchor? What can we really, really trust? Where is that core for each of us individually, as individual, you know, expressions of this amazing one life. Well, that's another koan. So that's another, another aspect for us to, uh, to investigate. It doesn't necessarily come about as an answer that one can give to another. It comes about through this uh, connection of uh, direct experience. And that's why we practice. That's why we uh, come and sit on the cushion and uh, endure the things that we endure uh, on the cushion. Because it has that, uh, that clarifying, uh, purifying effect to open us up to the original purpose of the yogic practices, the original purpose of shamanic practices, connecting with the universe, feeling a sense of completeness and wholeness as a being, making sure that there's nothing left out. So our practices bring about that that wholeness. And that which is subterranean in uh, in our bodies, in our psyches, in our emotional fields, our mental fields, um, when you contact that stuff in meditation, it just wants to be heard. 
But when we connect with that, it's not that we're going to relive it and relive the, the trauma all the time. But it, the suppression of these things um, only causes more complication. So what I'm speaking about is, is complex, and it's not necessarily always the thing that we undertake on a retreat. But you can feel some of that subterranean material. And it doesn't mean that anything is wrong with you. It is part of what we call the human condition. And actually, so much goodness and so much strength can come out of actually connecting with this material, with the conditioning, naturally arising out of the, uh, the fullness of experiencing this is compassion. You don't have to reach for compassion. You don't have to generate compassion in a certain way. It, it will be naturally there as you connect with the suffering that you have, recognize that suffering, mental, emotional, physical, energetic, neurological, biological, all these ways. The ways that you've connected with it, when you see that in another person, that begins to open into um, this deep, heartfelt sense of compassion. Compassion is wisdom in this way. It deeply recognizes our shared experience. It also can open up to a sense of tolerance for those who are in a place where they're really stuck, really stuck in their conditioning. It doesn't seem like there's any way out. So when we practice metta, one of the great gifts of this practice, in my experience, is being able to do this in a, in a very um, selfless and unconditional way. In a sense, it's um, like what is uh, called karma yoga. There are many kinds of yoga, as you all know. There's the hatha yoga of the physical practices. There's the raja yoga of the mental and concentration, the bhakti, the deep devotion, the jnana yoga, which is the, uh, the wisdom traditions. The deep purpose of this practice and the teachings of the Buddha Liberation, some intervention in habitual patterning, what was called being on the, the wheel of karma. So this, uh, this practice of karma yoga, in this sense, is doing the action. So you do the action of, if you're extending uh, loving kindness, may you be well, may you be free from harm, may you be safe, may you be peaceful then are you checking to make sure that that's happening on the other side over there? A true generous spirit um, gives that without the expectation of change, without the expectation of result, or without the expectation of even ever knowing, the, uh, another person even ever knowing you're doing that practice. We call that stealth meta. 
So, um, but when you can do the practice and let go of the result, that is a, a, a form of karma yoga, a form of deep care, uh, and it's very liberating for you. Then if the result happens on the other side, hmm, so much the better. If it doesn't, may you be well. That deep heart's intention for goodness and for well-being. So, in terms of the the Buddhist traditions, I'll just say a little bit about this integrative practice that we're doing of both the the uh, the metta and the qigong. Why why we we use it together. And let me just say a little something about the history of this. So, uh, in about the, sometime between the 5th and 6th centuries CE, there was a, an Indian monk, Buddhist monk. His name was Bodhidharma. Perhaps you've heard of him. And, um, he brought the, the practices of the Mahayana, that are probably even the early stages of the Vajrayana, um, to China. And he was part of this school that was called the School of Sudden Awakening. <laughs> and um, uh, it's kind of a long story. It's very much full of lore and so on. We don't actually know exactly what took place, but there are stories that have come down. At any rate, at a certain point, he retired uh, to the Shaolin Monastery. Now, this is the Shaolin Monastery. Of course, you've, you may have heard of the Shaolin Monastery and Kung Fu. And uh, this was before Kung Fu. This was Shaolin, and um, it was a Buddhist monastery. When Bodhidharma arrived there, it is the legend that he sat for these many, many years, sat for nine years, and then at some time after that began teaching. So during the time, he was just listening to the ants crawl up and down the wall. That's the kind of the lore about his stillness and his, uh, his, uh, his deep concentration. Um, whether or not that's so, you know, we may never know. So, but what is so is that when he began to come from whatever length of period he, he was in to, to uh, in practicing his... Uh, contemplation, practicing his meditation. Um, when he looked around the monastery, he uh, noticed the lack of vitality of, the, of the, the people that were practicing there. And uh, it's what's um, subsequently been called Zen disease. <laughs> what is Zen disease? I hope I don't have it. (laughs) Um, 
the lack of vitality it comes from maybe too much sitting, too much uh, just um, uh, not moving, um, and trying to trying to kind of make your way into enlightenment through your mind. So noticing this, he apparently had um, training himself in uh, some yogic practices or some uh, qigong daoyin practices um, and gave us the um, gave us two books and two systems of practice now this is buddhism this is this is the the beginning of of chan of zen and that's directly related to the forms of, of meditative practice that have happened in uh, all over the world, but in the yogic world, in the Indian tradition, we have dharana, dhyana, samadhi. So the dharana is that deep uh, gathering of attention, the deep, um, uh, sometimes called concentration. And then the meditation is that spacious uh, awareness. And the samadhi is that deep absorption. So I hope, uh, Temple, that's cogent with the things that you were talking about last night. I didn't check in with him on that one. But, so, uh, but I think there are different ways, different cultures have ways of representing that same thing. So dhyana in Chinese is chan, in Japanese, zen. Same thing. Um, so he gave us the uh, these practices for enlivening our practice, for enlivening the the life and the vitality. And when so it was the Yijin Jing and the Shishu Jing, these two books about uh, what's uh, you know, various kinds of energetic practices, very beautiful practices. We've done a little bit of that in our Qigong. Um, often they're much more vigorous in the way that the Shaolin monks now, they take them, as, they take them in the ways of their practice to deeply uh, strengthen the body and bring about flexibility and so on. He wanted to bring about the sense of vitality and well-being so that when you sit, there is a quality of that effortless presence that allows you to gather your attention and direct it on the objects of your focus, of your concentration. So that's the purpose. So if you have some interest in that, you can explore that a little bit more from the schools of Bodhidharma or continue to practice with me a little bit, which I'd be um, uh, very happy about. Um, so that's one of the ways that we've connected uh, here, especially in this tradition, um, the Theravadan tradition, the Thai forest tradition, the Burmese traditions, which don't necessarily have Qigong or embodiment, uh, embodiment arts, um, except, of course, they have the wonderful walking practice, which is uh, that, that connection with, uh, with essential mindfulness in motion. And as I said, the Buddha taught these four dignities of practice, the sitting practice, the walking practice, and by extension, our qigong practice, um, lying down, which we did today, and the dissolving. Um, 
What does that leave us? Let's see. Sitting, walking, standing. Oh, yes. So the standing practices that uh, were really refined and brought to a high uh, art and, uh, in China, sometimes called the supreme meditation practice by those who practice it, of course. <laughs> so, uh, um, but we, we use standing meditation here, but realize that it's not just something to do when you're tired of sitting or sore of sitting. It is that too, but it is also a very wonderful and powerful practice that um, as standing and opening, uh, activating that, the whole body is, uh, has a, a wonderful sense of circulation and uh, presence as well. So I encourage you, if you're interested, if you feel connected to it, to, um, to make that a part of your practice um, and see what arises in it. Use short periods of practice uh, in cultivating any of these. Uh, loved the instructions that uh, the temple gave today and those kind of micro moments uh, and micro periods of practice. They really deeply seed um, uh, the goodness and the, the benefits of the practice. Well, I think that's good for now. I mean, I believe me, I can go on and on. So, um, and um, just to say one last thing in, the, in relationship to the, the Dharma practice that we do as Qigong or the embodied mindfulness, so much of that is, in, is guided presence. So you're, we're connecting together, we're in training together the, in, field, in the field of practice, this real cohesion, this real unity. It's very beautiful. I feel when we're together and we breathe, we're breathing together. We feel this uh, this pulse of breath, this uh, um, unification of uh, intention and purpose. So, I think I want to sing something for you. The Dharma is expressed in many different ways, and uh, uh, through song is certainly one of those. Uh, so just give me a minute. Meditate amongst yourselves. <laughs> Spring really likes this song. I do too. Everybody does. Um, so this piece that I want to do is called Bring Them All In. And in a sense, it, it uh, references into uh, what I was talking about, this growing up, this waking up, 
um, the kind of generosity of spirit that we give to what opens on retreat, what opens inside of our practice. So it's a kind of um, an invocation, a recognition of this openness and, and the invitation to just let it come on in. It's called bring them all in. Oh, yes, absolutely sing it with me. Oh, sure. Yes, sure, yeah, that's right. Yeah, You'll, when, you, when you hear kind of the refrain, the chorus, or, you know, bring your saxophone out. And <laughs> sing along. <laughs>
bring them out of store bring them out of It's interesting in 
in looking at lyrics and, and various songs, you know, they don't have to necessarily talk about the Buddha <laughs> in that direct way, but you get the sense of connection uh, with the poetry that might open images for you or feelings, and, uh, and that's kind of the purpose of this communication. Uh, heart sense, direct heart sense. Clearly see 
Statue of Liberty sailing away to sea. And I dreamed I was flying. They come on the ship they called the Mayflower. Come on the ship that sailed. Sing an American tune, oh, but it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. You can be forever talk for this evening. Um, we have about, you know, as, as usual, I have about um, half hour or so for um, walking. And then this evening we'll resume um, some of our chanting. So uh, I'll do that right now. And it will be a, a special chant for Pajna Paramita. The divine feminine embodiment of the Buddha nature. Okay, any blessings? Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash/donate.